The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. purposely have waited this long. I've always felt very threatened. You know, uh, a lot of folks that uh, gave testimony are no longer around to give testimony any longer. I didn't want to become a statistic. I didn't want to be one of those people that shot myself in the back of the head with a shotgun. One night in particular, I recall about two weeks prior to the assassination, uh, being in the club, a parking lot separated his club, the carousel, and the club that I worked at, the colony club. So in between shows, the showgirls from the Colony Club would go over to Jack's Club and watch their show, and in their show breaks, they would come and watch our show. So I had trotted over there that night and, and was watching uh, the show, and uh, there was a girl that danced there by the name of Jada, and she was sitting at the table with Jack Ruby and another man, and I went and sat down with them to have a drink. As I sat down at the table, uh, Ruby introduced me to the man sitting there at the table with he and Jada and he said Beverly this is my friend Lee and after Jack Ruby went into the police station and killed Lee Harvey Oswald it was then that I realized this was the man that I had met in the club two weeks prior to the assassination of Kennedy Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby were linked together and I don't know how and probably I never will but I know in my heart that man, Lee Harvey Oswald, or the person that was shot in the basement of the police station, was the man that was in the club two weeks prior to the assassination. As a matter of fact, the next day, Jada gave an interview to the newspaper, and she said the same thing that I'm saying to you now, that she met Oswald two weeks prior to the assassination of Kennedy. However, unfortunate it is, Jada is dead, or so they tell me. Well, 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 what is up, everybody? Welcome to the show. And uh, we're going to be shredding some claims today with F.J. James. That's right. Several of the claims 
made by folks associated with the case. And you just heard one. Her name is Beverly Oliver Masigi. And she said a lot of stuff right there. Uh, a lot of claims made by her. And that's not even close to being all of them. That's just a few. Um, now, I didn't find this clip until after Fred and I had talked. And she said something in this interview that intrigued me a little bit. That She said that the day after the assassination, that Jada gave a newspaper interview where she stated that she met Lee Oswald in Jack Ruby's club two weeks before the assassination. Now, in all of the years of research, I have never, ever come across this newspaper interview. Uh, this would have been a smoking gun. She did not say this on camera when she was being interviewed for the news. Uh, and I haven't seen her produce this document, and I've never seen it. So, But what I'm asking is if anyone out there has any knowledge of what paper, what, because uh, we know the day, it was the day after, so it would have been the 23rd when she gave the interview. So the, the it would have either come out as a special edition on the 23rd, the 24th, or the 25th. And it had to be a, a local da Dallas area newspaper or the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, something of this nature, the Morning News, um, the Morning Herald. Uh, it had to be something like that because, you know, allegedly, this is where she gave the interview. And uh, I'm just wondering if anybody out there has any knowledge of it. You know, Beverly says that this occurred, but I would like to see proof, a uh you know, somewhere I can go to actually read the article would be great. A link, a photocopy, the actual newspaper. I'll take anything at this point because um, I would like to see that. Um, it sounds, you know, like this is where Beverly got her idea for saying this. Um, but as far as Jada actually giving an interview, because Supposedly, the last day she worked at the Carousel Club was October 31st. That was when her contract was up with Jack Ruby. And, you know, allegedly, you know, they weren't on the best of terms, like hanging out buddy-buddy type things. Jack Ruby thought she was uh, really not worth the money uh, that she demanded. Uh, you know, her stage shows were getting increasingly more and more uh, promis promiscuous and risque, you know, at, you know, oops, I let my whole entire boob out, or, you know, oh, my panties fell off, and, you know, Jack would have to hurry up and hit the lights and, and sc scurry her off stage and, you know, things of this nature. So, you know, it's not like they were a buddy-buddy and hanging out all the time. And I'm sorry, but Jada, as an exa exotic dancer or any other exotic dancer, is not going to hang around in a city that they do not live in, okay, for two weeks after their contract is up for fun. She was married at the time uh, to a Confortato. That was her married name, Janet Confortato. And they were married and living in New Orleans at the time. So understandably, if she was doing a stint, okay, you know, Jack paid her for, to come be a featured dancer for a month in Dallas, you know, he would pay to put her up. He would pay her a premium, 
you know, he would, you know, and uh, of course she would make tips and, 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 and things of this nature. But once your contract is up, you're going to go home to where you live to be with your husband and spend time with him. You're not going to hang out in a strange city for two plus weeks after your contract is up, just hanging around. You know, it just makes no sense whatsoever. So if anybody out there has this information, uh, has this article, please send it our way because, you know, I asked Fred about it after the interview and he, he, he had no knowledge of it either. I've asked several other researchers and they don't know where to find this alleged article. Um, and I will give you some advice. When I get done talking here in a second, turn your radio down. Okay. I, I understand that my voice is going to come in very, very hot and very loud. And I'm working on these uh, technical aspects of the show. So bear with me. The entire interview is not like this. It's, it's probably like the first minute or two. My voice is extremely loud. Um, but thankfully, I don't talk much during this interview. I let my guest, Fred F.J. James, do most of the talking. Um, and, he, and he sounds good. His levels are good. I need to work on my levels. I don't know what the problem is, but I'm working on it. I'm aware of it, so I don't need a thousand messages telling me my levels are off and I sound like really, really loud. I know this. I'm well aware and I'm working on fixing the problem. Uh, you know, I don't have a $100,000 studio like Black Hop Radio. Okay, this is a podcast. I am well aware of the audio problems. So you don't need to point them out to me. I'm working on them, and I promise you I, I, I will try to get them resolved. I've had issues with the Skype recorder. I've had issues with the headphones and microphone, um, and I'm trying to figure it out. Okay, so bear with me. Like I said, it's turn your radio down because I am going to come in extremely, extremely hot. Okay, um, but like I said, it, it's 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 only really, really bad like the first minute or so. So that's me doing most of the talking and, and uh, you know introducing Fred, and then and then we get going in, in the show. Okay, so I apologize in advance. I, I'm aware of the problem, and I will, I'm working on fixing it and, and figuring it out. I'm not a sound expert by any means I, you know i do know some things but i'm trying to figure it out too so bear with me and anyway without further ado let's get into the show and shred some claims with my man my friend and my research compadre mr fred james What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode 126 of the Lone Gunman Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Clark. And today, I got a really special treat. It's been a while since I've had uh, someone of the other side on the show. Uh, so welcome, if you will, Mr. Fred F.J. James. How you doing, sir? Thank you very much, Rob, for having me on the show. Oh, it's no problem at all. I mean, I've known you for a while online. Uh, even before you went to the dark side there, uh, I'm just joking with you. And, uh, you know, I, I, I truly respect your, your research capabilities and your, and your willingness to look at things from all angles and also your civility. You know, there's, a, there's plenty of spite on both sides of the fence out here. And it's good when we can get along and share research and, and argue in a civil manner and have discussions. And, you know, that makes it real nice. Like, as I mentioned before, you, you know, you were the 
conspiracy side of things when I first met you. You've since did a 180, and if you could, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how and how you came to the case and, and how you're thinking about it now. I'm from Detroit. I grew up in inner city. Uh, you know, just watching programs on TV. I, of course, in school, you, you're aware of John F. Kennedy, and you know he was assassinated. Uh, you know a little bit about the politics, who was president before, who was after, uh, those type of things. And I saw a program, uh, probably would have been 86 or 87. It was before the men who killed Kennedy. It was something else. I have since gone online and found uh, In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. I don't know if you know that program. I remember watching that kind of regularly back at that time. So I'm assuming it probably was that program that I saw where they were uh, purporting different theories about how uh, Kennedy died. It really got my intrigue at that point. So pretty much from that point on, uh, I pretty much believed there had to be a conspiracy. I mean, just based on information, everything fit uh, the, the way I thought it should fit for a conspiracy. Uh, and then, you know, I got confirmation. I got I read uh, Jim Garrison's book on the trail of the assassinations. I read it the first time. It was so good I had to read it again. And this is after I saw the, the film JFK. That's when I really started reading the books. Of course, that film, uh, I look at it today, and you and I both can pick things apart, but it is a, it's an outstanding movie. Right, and, uh, yeah. It, it really got me interested on a, a deeper level, however, not on a level of deep research as of yet. But I did read a couple books, thought I knew a few things, and then it turns out I didn't really know a lot at all. I'm, of course, still learning today. But I uh, got the opportunity. In 2003, I went to uh, Diddy Plaza for the 40th year. And I said, you know, this is pretty good. I'm going to come back. So the 50th, I went back again with my girlfriend, Julie. We back there. And uh, I'm still in the conspiracy camp pretty heavily at that point. But some things as I'm there just started to bother me, just technical things uh, like, you know, the head injury and, and things like that. It, it, it troubled me, but I'm still believing that there had to be conspiracy. Yeah. So uh, I ended up joining a couple of the Facebook uh, forums. And only then did I start to see, you know, I'm not the uh, researcher that I thought I might be. I mean, these people are, they, they're way into it and they, they go deep and they, they dig things up, uh, primary source materials. And, yeah, it's intimidating at first. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I had no, I had no idea the level at the depth that some people go in in the research. So as I started to see some of the things that are being posted, it started to make me think. Well, what am I doing? I need to do something more than what I'm doing because uh, it, it goes a lot deeper than the, the books that I'm reading and the TV programs that I've seen. So uh, when I started seeing that, I started seeing things that pretty much uh, disproved prior beliefs that I had about uh, certain conspiracies. And uh, initially I jumped in when I first started joining groups. I mean, this is coming right, this is right after I come back from Dallas in 2013 for the 50th. I jumped in these groups and I'm thinking, I know something, so I you know, start stating what I believe and uh, the evidence that I believe proves the conspiracy and whatnot. And ironically, it's uh, other people who believe in the conspiracy that are knocking my assertions down. I mean, they're just posting things like uh, actual primary source materials. And, uh, you know, it's like, I have to like, like 
tail between my legs go away, and then I go read and do some research and try to come back. And this is this is going on over and over and over again. But you know, uh, of course, I. Pretty proud that I believe that there had to be a conspiracy. I mean, I thought that uh, Jim Garrison had to be really, really close as to what actually occurred. So I'm, I'm kind of sticking with it pretty good for a while. And then one day, I picked up this book that had been laying around. My girlfriend bought it. She knew I was into the. Uh, she was on an enthusiast about the uh, assassination, and it was the JFK myth by Larry Sturdivant. Okay. But on the on the cover of that book. There's a picture of uh, Dale Myers' computer graphic. And so that really turned me off because I was anti-Dale Myers at the time. And so I would not pick up this book. And I'm you know, continuing reading uh, some of my other conspiracy books. One day I just started to, to read through it, and I started reading about the uh, 399. And my whole perspective on 399 was completely changed when I, once I understood the, the, the physics behind uh, the bullet's damage, the bullet's trajectory, the bullet's uh, velocity, and those things all together, I understood how it could possibly work. And, then, you know, it, that kind of started the uh, the change. And, and there's some other things, too, on, you know, because I was seeing where uh, people were purporting these all these mysterious deaths as fact. At the time, I thought, you know, yeah, these people are being eradicated because they're witnesses. And then I started to see uh, autopsy reports and death certificates and newspaper articles and started to really learn how some of these people actually died. And from there on, it just, uh, thing after thing, previous beliefs, they just started falling and falling and falling. And I'm like, well, what if Oswald really did do it? And from that point on, I, you know, I think Oswald did it. And everything I've seen has confirmed in my mind that to be the case. Uh, just real brief, I'm going to let you jump in, but when I started to evaluate uh, the evidence as presented by the Warren Commission and, and the HSCA and the Clark Panel and whatnot, I started to imagine, you know, in order for Oswald to be innocent, most of these things have to be faked. So I started adding them up. And the list got higher and higher, and I started to think, is it probable that all these things could, could be fake? I understand some things can come uh, come about naturally if other things are fake. Right. But when I started adding the things that have to be fake in order for Oswald to be innocent, it was just too much. It was just it became improbable. And, you know, because we're talking about, of course, ballistics from a gun that would have to be planted. Uh, we're talking about uh, the mail order has to be forged with uh, envelopes. Uh, the money order would have to be doctored up. And, you know, it's just all these things are adding up, and it's like uh, there's no way. I, I, I guess some people can believe it. most of it could be fake. I mean, if they're planning it for long enough in advance. But for me, uh, just my personal opinion, all those items could not possibly be fake. Right, and that's that, and that's my journey. That's how I become. Uh, that's how I turned, as you say, to the dark side. <laughs> well, you, when you did mention it at the beginning of that uh, CE three ninety nine, and you know the problems that you had with it at the beginning, and you know not not really being able to understand how it could do everything it was supposed to do and come out looking like it did. Um, 
and that's where that's where I have a problem too. When you when you see a lead round nose bullet supposedly go through two men and create what seven different injuries and and not not manage to come out looking smushed like mushroomed. It, it's just it it boggles the mind. So it, it, if you right. could, Fred, just uh, expand a little bit on your beliefs on three ninety nine for me. Yes, uh, I was right where you are. I mean, I, I, there's no way. Because when you think about it, uh, especially when the Warren Commission, and they're their own worst enemy at some point, they put out the photographs of different bullets that uh, deform when they hit a wrist, for example, or a goat carcass, and they show this way deformed bullet. But then you have the bullets that they purport went through two men and just came out the way it, it looked. When you understand the basic ballistic uh, physics of, of it and how bullets deform under certain conditions, you can then start to understand how it came out the way it did. First, we know that bullet 399 did have the microscopic engravings from the Carcano. So we know it was fired from that bullet. Now, the question is, when was it fired? Was it staged? Did someone fire it before the assassination? Okay. Right. In, in a lot of minds, that would have to be the case because they don't believe that the damage it incurred is consist, consistent with the two men. But this is why the bullet was not damaged. And there's been demonstrations performed that show why the bullet would not have been damaged that much. You have to consider velocity first, and then you also have to consider density. Uh, you, and I'm sure you've heard before, Rob, how when the bullet went through the base of Kennedy's neck, I think they, they uh, measured it, would have been like 14 centimeters or something like close to that. It didn't hit anything uh, dense like bone or anything. It just went through soft tissue. Right. And that, of course, reduced the velocity. Now, had it hit something directly with maximum velocity, let's say about 2,000 to 1,800 feet per second, you're going to have the damage. But if you don't have something to create enough force imparted on the bullet to cause the damage, then it's going to go clean through the material. Soft tissue is not one of those materials that will deform a bullet unless the bullet is going uh, fast enough. Now, you can have a bullet uh, become damaged on soft tissue, but it just, has, it just has to be a faster bullet, a higher velocity. An M16 bullet, 5.56 round, can be damaged only on soft tissue because it, the velocity is much higher. The force is much greater on that bullet when it strikes the tissue. So when we're talking for three, M16, we're talking like maybe 3,100 feet per second. The uh, cardinal right. bullet is only going about 2,100 feet per second from the muzzle. By the time it hits the, the body, it's, it's reduced. Of course, you know, you have the uh, drag through the air, which is going to reduce some of the velocity. And then it's only going maybe 1,900, 1,800 feet per second when it, when it hits Kennedy. Going that fast, it would have to hit something hard to become damaged. It is below the damage threshold for that particular bullet at that particular velocity to sustain damage hitting soft tissue. Had it hit something harder at that velocity that it hit Kennedy, then it would have been damaged because, you know, people compare the uh, head bullet to the bullet that passed through his neck and they say, well, how can this bullet do this and that one do that? 
Well, it hit his head. There's a lot much more force when you have a, a bullet with that velocity hitting something much denser than the, the soft tissue. So it makes perfect sense. I mean, physically, it, it makes uh, perfect sense that when you have a faster bullet hitting a more dense target, you're going to have the damage. Essentially, what it is is speed equals greater deformity and density equals greater deformity. If you combine the two, then there's more of a chance that you're going to have some deformity on the bullet. If you take one away, then there's a chance that you're going to have less deformity. If you take both away, there's probably going to hardly be any uh, deformity. In uh, Kennedy's case with the 399, you had the velocity. You didn't have the, the uh, density. So it goes through his neck, and the first thing it hits that's really hard is the Connolly's uh, fifth rib. And the fifth rib is not the same as striking Kennedy in the skull, especially after the reduction in velocity. And it's not the same anyway because the skull is not the same density as the, the fifth rib, which is only it's thin. It's like 10 centimeters, and it's, it only has to pass like a short period. And additionally, before it even hit the rib, it had to go through the tissues of the back. So that reduced the velocity even further. If you compare like the a rifle bullet of this velocity to, say, a pistol bullet, if you, like most military and police people are familiar that the pistol rounds, you know, you can find those intact after they've hit people. But right. the uh, rifle rounds are typically mangled because of the velocity. It just has, has everything to do with the velocity. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I always figured it would be the other way around and, you know, higher velocity or, I mean, lower velocity, more damage uh, just because it's, it's traveling at a slower rate. But that, what you said makes sense. You know, it's now what, what about versus a pointy nose bullet? A point, those pointy nose bullets typically come in rifles of higher velocity. Uh, the like an AK-47 is almost about the same speed as the Carcano, just slightly higher. It's the same thing. If those bullets are not as stable, they're not as uh, they don't have the same integrity as a Carcano bullet. But they will damage if they hit hard enough tissue. Like, if you go faster or higher in velocity, it just destroys the bullet. Uh, let me put it this way. This makes it much more simpler. It's like a much smaller scale and uh, uh, very much less, uh, how would you say, uh, effect than we're, than we're talking with bullets. This is just very basic, smaller uh, scale. Just imagine if you have... Uh, two raw, two raw eggs. Okay. Okay. If you take one raw egg and roll it really, really slow on the floor into the wall, it, it's not going to crack. The more you increase the roll, the speed of the roll, at some point, it's going to crack. Now, bullets are the same. It's, it's the same principle. Bullets are exactly the same way. We're talking much, much greater forces and uh, much greater density. But it's the, the, the concepts are exactly the same. If you drop an egg on a pillow, it, it may not crack. But if you drop it on a hard floor, it's going to crack. See, that, there's the density. So we have the speed and density uh, compared to the actual, what, what actually occurs with uh, ballistics is the same as what it occurs with my you know, little demonstration with the eggs. So, I mean, that's a basic way that I think, you know, I can explain it to where people can understand what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good allegory. 
Um, yeah, I, I get it now. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not convinced 100, percent but you know, I understand the logic behind that reasoning for sure. Um, let's move on. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Just real one, one quick yeah. thing on 399. The thing yeah. to remember when we're talking in terms of, of, of uh, bullet deformity, how hard was the target and how fast was the bullet moving when it hit the target? That's the thing to remember. Because if you shoot a person with a 45 caliber bullet and it hits a bone, you might be able to recover that bullet whole because the 45 caliber bullet is moving about 900 feet per second. Right. If the same person with, with the carcinal bullet in the same bone that bullet is going to be damaged because the forces are much greater. Yeah, I just wish he could have used something a little different than a stupid Carcano. Uh, make things a hell of a lot easier. Cause, um, but, you know, it is what it is, and he did what he did with what he, uh, with what he used, so that's what we're stuck with. Um, and, of course, you know, could he have made the shot? You know, he, he did have Marine training. You know, and then you get into the problems of what was the rifle sighted in? What, did he have to put it together on the spot? And on and on and on and on and on. Um, yeah, those are those are things both sides have to speculate on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and we'll, I'm sure we'll be arguing about it for years to come. Because um, you know that's what ninety percent of this case is is speculation. I mean, you can try to prove things one way or the other with scientific method and and logic, and it's and like you know, I mean, convincing the other side of something that they believe in is very hard to do, you know. I think I have the answer to why that is, at least for myself I do. Uh, before I made the conversion over, I, you know, I was really proud that I was on that side because in my mind, you know, I'm on Kennedy's side. I'm on the side of the people who, uh, I'm against the people who killed them, so... I'm, I have like an us against them mentality, and I'm thinking the, there was an inside job to uh, get rid of Kennedy so that a new government could take over. I mean, that's, if that's my thinking, then I'm going to find evidence to back up that thinking. It was really tough when I started to, in my mind, logically connect the information which, in my opinion, proves that it was Oswald. I mean, it, when I started to believe that, I went through like a mini depression because all, you know, pretty much all my adult life, I'm thinking, you know, he's framed, he's framed, he's framed. And turns out, you know, the information that's available that I never really dove into with any depth, and it, it's right there. It shows that uh, he's, he probably did it. I mean, it, it answered a lot of questions that I had. A lot of the things that bothered me when I was on the conspiracy side they no longer bother me anymore because there's a pretty much an answer to it. And it was a tough thing. It was just, and then I became, I, I got kind of angry and uh, I started to target the people who I thought betrayed my trust, like, you know, researchers and people who have come forward. I still like those people. I liked them then. I still like them now, but in my opinion, they betrayed my trust. So I started to criticize some of them. So I think some of them we're going to be talking about tonight. And, uh, <laughs> That's kind of my motivation. I mean, there's no money around it in this for me, even though some people believe I work for the CIA now or something. But uh, yeah. I, I, I just want to know what happened. I'm, we're just alike. You and I, we just want to know what happened, don't we? 
Yeah, for sure. And and I think guys like you, Steve Rowe, and and a couple others, of course, are just want the truth, no matter what it is. You know, if if it turns out that a piece of evidence comes out tomorrow that proves Oswald wasn't up on the sixth floor and he didn't shoot, then I mean, you got to be able to change your mind, right? Have to. If there's evidence to show that, then. If you're not objective and you're not honest, if you don't change your mind, if there's evidence that Oswald was not up there, good evidence, solid empirical evidence, and you still believe that he did it, then you're not being honest with yourself and you're not being objective. But it's going to have to be some pretty good evidence. Yeah, and even vice versa. You know, if something come out tomorrow that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Oswald was up there shooting that gun, then the people on the conspiracy side are going to have to, you know, change their way of thinking as well. And if and like you said, if they don't, then, then there's a problem. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that they would demand that the evidence be good evidence, and anyone should. Right, right. So let's get to some of these folks in, in the research community that uh, – because I, I know you've, uh, you've called into Chuck's show before you've been on Chuck's show, um, and over there they like to have this um, – do a little myth-busting – and I think it's something that we on both sides can agree on that does, you know, that these people just do so much damage to the research community as a whole, you know, as far as getting the record straight. I mean, even if it's, you know, like I'm on the conspiracy side of things and, and these people are allegedly on the conspiracy side of things as well, but they muddy the water so bad and, and they get people's heads so twisted over this, idiotic so-called evidence and their stories with nothing to back it up, you know, no evidence, no nothing, just, hey, I was there, you know, I, me and Lee were dating, or you know, be James Files, he has his followers, Judy Baker has her followers, and, you know, these people, you know, like even that Oswald Innocence campaign, you know, these guys, it's insane to me what they, what they do, you know, about trying to put Love Lady in a different place in the doorway, and yeah, some of the stuff they come up with is just crazy. For sure. And uh, well, one of the people I wanted to talk to you tonight, because you've done a lot of good work on it, and I'd never really thought about it too much before because she really wasn't on my radar for any huge reason, but I guess she was what you would call the first um, before Judy Baker, you know, before James Files, before Madeline Brown, before all this other nonsense. Um you know, I think she came out in 1970. We're talking about Beverly Oliver here. And, uh, yeah, that, that, that's correct. Although she claimed that uh, her story was leaked in 72, I think when dealing with, uh, I forgot what it was, but she said something about her story being leaked out in 72. But she got with Gary Shaw in 70. They, uh, she reports that they uh, attended a church revival together, and someone remember the individual's name, introduced them. And, of course, uh, Gary Shaw, is a, he's an investigator, conspiracy investigator, and he knew of the Babushka lady. And, and Beverly says, hey, I was in duty plots when that happened, and this is where I was, and this is what I was wearing, and they put it together that she's the Babushka lady. Now, it comes down to what you want to believe. Uh, do you think that that meeting actually took place? I mean, is it is it realistic that they would come together under such circumstances and uh, yeah. miraculously find out that, hey, we're both looking for the Babushka lady. You are her, and I'm looking for her. I mean, 
it it it, it rubs me kind of wrong. Yeah. So as for me, everything that comes after that is suspect. So, and then you know now after all this time and the internet and everything, we've been able to put things together, which really discredits uh, her claims. And I think I think Shaw also should be responsible for some of this because no one goes to him and say, you know, what's going on? How did Beverly become the Babushka lady when we have all these inconsistencies? Right. I mean, uh, and and just real quick off the bat, let's 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 get into some of these inconsistencies and starting with the fact that in you know just looking at the pictures of the Babushka lady, it doesn't look like a seventeen-year-old blonde girl for for to me. I mean. To me, it looks like a stockier, older woman or person. I totally agree with you. There's actually some footage of Beverly where she's dancing at the, I guess it would be the Colony Club, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, there's also some of the film footage of her in 1966. And she is nowhere near the size of the, the, bush, the bush lady. She is thinner. I mean, she's youthful. I mean, you can, you can see it, that there's, you know, there's, total difference in shape and size. And it, you, it appears that there's a difference in age. Yeah, I mean, even the stance, too, it, it's it's more of a you know, wide-set stance of somebody that's supporting a, you know, a little bit of weight, you know, like an older person would. Um, and, of course, part of the problem is nobody's ever come out to say, hey, no, uh, Beverly, you're not that lady. I was that lady. I can prove it. Here's my jacket. Here's my babushka. Here's my camera. And uh, that, unfortunately, has never happened. Yeah, it is unfortunate because it makes you wonder, where is that lady? What happened to her? I mean, who knows? I mean, is she even alive? There was a report, however, that uh, Gary Mack dug up some years back that a uh, a lady did go to the Kodak Labs where Zapruder's film was being developed, and she wanted to see if she can get some film developed. And the the, the description matches the lady you see in the films in Dealey Plaza. So, uh, you know, that's a possibility there, that that could have been the actual Babush lady. As to what happened to her, I mean, no one knows. Yeah, I mean, I was even watching a, uh, a movie um came out a couple of years ago, and it was all about the Babushka lady story about how, you know, her, this, 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 this lady, um, I don't know if she passed away or not, but her granddaughter like inherited all her stuff. And then it was this missing film that's been around forever. Um, you know, supposedly the Babushka lady film. And she figures out that her grandmother was this the Babushka lady and how she ended up in Dealey Plaza. And, you know, there wasn't any big name stars in it. It was just a, a low budget movie, but, um, it was an interesting story, but it's it's just a story because I'm sorry, Beverly Oliver, with without your film or your camera or anything else, you know, it's just a story. You know, they can't be substantiated yeah, this, by anything. My, this is a, a theory that I have. I don't believe when they came up with this, these stories that they had access to uh, some of the photographs that will come about later. Because I know, I think the Skaggs photographs didn't come about until much later after the claims were made. And maybe they hadn't seen good quality pictures of the uh, William Allen photos. He worked for the, uh, the Dallas Times World, Dallas Times Herald. Right. 
and uh, he's got some pretty sharp pictures of the babushka lady. I mean, you don't see her face, but there's other details that you can you can see that are pretty sharp. Uh, I would advise anyone who wants to see the, the babushka lady in the, the clearest pictures possible of, that we know of. They're definitely made by William Allen. And you can see those in uh, Robin Unger's uh, website, his uh, JFK photo gallery. They're William Allen photos. And in those photos, I mean, you mentioned that this film that they that they did where the, the young lady finds her grandmother or mother's film, there was no film, no moving film made by the Babushka lady. If you look at the Allen photos, it's very clear she had a still picture camera. And it was a box camera. If it was not a Sears Tower camera, it was something similar to it. Sears and Roebuck made a tower camera uh, model that went from about 1941 to 1954 or something like that, I think. And other companies made box cameras too. It could have been one of those, but they none of them were continuing to make those cameras after the mid-50s. And you can see that this is one of those old cameras. Uh, if I might talk about that, the, the camera... It takes a cartridge, I and mean, you have to pull a little lever, and a latch opens up like a door, and you pull this uh, spool out, and it, you have to actually manually put the film. It's like a paper leader on the film that you feed into the spool, and you put it back in the camera and wind it up, and then you start taking shots. The Babush lady wouldn't have gotten no more than two or three shots, but this is a very primitive camera. You have to wind it up after each shot. Right. Uh, and there's no way she could have got more than two or three shots of the assassination itself. And there's to see this camera, I mean, it's very clear. You can see the 90-degree angles on his total square box. Nothing like a 8-millimeter camera with a handle and telephoto lens like uh, uh, Beverly said she had. Nothing like that. It's just a plain old, old-fashioned box. Primitive camera. You couldn't even tilt those cameras. They, when you read the owner's manual, they say, hold firmly to your forehead and don't tilt this way or that <laughs> way and make sure you're standing straight up. I mean, this is a real primitive type camera. No, no way it's going to be a film. I mean, you can see it uh, in the Allen photos. So that, that part of her story, if there's an explanation, I would totally love to hear it, but the Bush lady had a still picture camera. Yeah, I mean, even in her, you know, the alleged camera she says she has has even changed throughout the years. I think it was supposed to be a Yashica Super 8 um, that wasn't even out for, I think, four or five more years, um, at least to the it, public. It came out in 67, and they, I think they proved that there might have been a prototype in 65, but that's the earliest one could have come out. Yeah, they wouldn't have had a, a four-year prior prototype. You know, You know what I'm saying? That's just... That's way too long. I mean, if the if the camera's ready by 1963, they're not going to wait another four years to put it out. At least I wouldn't right. think. You know, I could see you know yeah, and, uh, a couple months or a year at the most. You know, from prototype to production, but it depends on who was asking her as to what she said the camera was because she denied that ever saying it was a Yashica at one point, but right, it yeah. what she told. If you look in Jim Meyer's book, Crossfire, she told him it was a, a Super 8, 8-millimeter uh, Yashica. Yeah, she, she told Gary Shaw that, too. Exactly. But when she testifies under oath, it becomes something else. And you, you will notice that uh, 
other things that she testified to under oath were different from what she will say at the symposiums and the conferences. Oh, for sure. And yeah, it tends to change a little bit. Yeah, and, and something else she said is, of course, that you know she knew Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby took her to dinner the night before the assassination with him. He gave her a polka dot dress to wear. She's met Raul. Uh, she's met Lee Oswald. I think he was introduced to to her as, "Hey, this is Lee Oswald from the CIA." Right. <laughs> In the company of, of of course, the famous stripper Jada, who denied this, you know, ever meeting Lee Oswald or anything. In her book, she says, Jada said that uh, that meeting took place. Jada never said that. Jada was on, was being interviewed by Eddie Barker uh, not long after the assassination. She said she never met Oswald, never seen the guy before. So where that comes from, I don't know. Jada, uh, Jada never said that. Yeah, and she last danced for Jack Ruby, I think it was um, at the end of October. And She says that the Halloween uh, of 63 was the last time they, they, separate, they parted their ways. Uh, Jack Ruby and Jada. Yeah, and I but, believe uh, another claim of hers she is... She has a meeting uh, like two weeks before the assassination. She has the two or three weeks before the assassination, she has said in the book, I think. I can't remember where she said it, but uh, shortly before the assassination, she's got all of the meeting, and uh, Ruby saying, hey, meet my friend Lee from the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on now. That's just... That on itself is just patently ridiculous. Um... I mean, yeah, I can't even talk about that anymore. It's just patently ridiculous on its surface. And one of her other claims is that FBI agent Regis Kennedy, who was, uh, I believe he was stationed in uh, New Orleans at the time, was the, was the one that took her uh, her film and camera from her. But he can prove that he was actually in New Orleans. He was interviewing one of Garrison's people, wasn't he? He was interviewing somebody in the garrison investigation. I believe so. In New Orleans, when he was supposed to, according to Oliver, was supposed to be in Dallas. Yeah, that would have been on a Monday. Yeah, I think it was three days after. Yeah. Yeah, and because uh, it was Monday that she said she was on the landing at, at, of the stairs and when she uh, made contact. I mean, one story, it was two FBI guys, and then it, another time it was one FBI guy and a CIA guy working together, I guess. Yeah, because you know, the, the CIA guys, they always identify themselves. Hi, I'm Rob Clark with the CIA. And the, uh, the, the FBI guy was Regis Kennedy. Yeah. We know. I wish I could remember right now who he was interviewing, but it was somebody prominent in Garrison's investigations he was interviewing at the time. Yeah. In, in New Orleans. Can't remember who it was. Yeah, well, she claimed that David Ferry would, would frequent the... the, the uh, the Carousel Club, you know, they, she said he was there all the time so much that she, she thought he was an assistant manager, uh, you know, and I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, like he was flying back and forth. Know. Yeah. Everyone knows the bizarre appearance that David Ferry had. So why didn't anyone else notice David Ferry there, especially if he's like all flamboyant and uh, bossing people around or he looks like a manager or whatever? Why is no one else mentioning this. I mean, we got other directors and employees at the uh, carousel and at the colony clubs, and no one's mentioning David Ferry except for Beverly Oliver. Yeah, I mean, and I think he, just, yeah, he doesn't jive for me. Yeah, he'd be very memorable, um, you know, from his appearance. And, yeah, nobody nobody else claims to have seen him around there. Um, 
and something else, she she claims to have met Jack Lawrence. The Jack Lawrence was another another regular. Now Jack Lawrence, for those you don't don't know, uh, he was employed at the I think it was at the Lincoln Mercury dealership there in Dallas at the time, and of course he's been you know a so-called suspect in quotes uh, for many many years just because of his odd story you know that he was returning a demonstrator on November 22nd late he was hungover uh, he couldn't get through Dealey Plaza so he ended up parking this thing behind the grassy knoll fence and the story goes that he ret- when he returned to the dealership that he was covered in head to toe in mud and was sick uh, and he was let go you know, for this, I mean, and this is the same dealership that supposedly the Oswald had been at a couple weeks prior and test driving a car. Right. And that, the, that part of it, I, I'm, I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with the uh, mud and everything. Right. And what, he'd worked there for, and well, the Jack Lawrence story is a little, it is a little odd. I mean, he came to Dallas about the same time as Crayford and Oswald and, and all this, and the funny thing is that he was working in New Orleans before this at a, at a, at a different car dealership. Um, and in Ron Lewis's book, he talks about um, meeting him and that they would talk and this and that. But um, So he, he goes to Dallas and he gets a job there. He never sells a car. He was there for, I think, employed at this Lincoln Mercury dealership for a month or two. He never did sell a car. Um, and he was actually borrowing somebody's demonstrator and he was supposed to be at work at 9 o'clock that morning, and he was hungover, and he was late returning the car, and he had to park it behind the grassy knoll. And he returned to the dealership Is on foot. Is this story, or he originated the story, didn't he? Doesn't he? I'm not sure if, he, if it comes from him or the people at the dealership. Hmm. It's just another, another thing that uh, added to her story that you later have to defend of many other things. I mean, it becomes, I understand, you know, when people make a lot of claims, you don't want to make a lot of claims because you have to, they have to hold up and you don't have to defend a bunch of claims that are made up because they fall apart. In this case, there's too many claims. Yeah. There's another one. I'm just, it's, there's this other one that uh, she said that the uh, 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 Dallas police Sergeant Patrick Dean was in duty class on the 22nd. But there's other information that he was on a fishing trip that day and didn't come back, didn't go back to work until the 23rd. Yeah, another one is her running across the street to the grassy knoll right after the assassination and seeing who not, who other than Roscoe White behind the picket fence. Yeah, and Roscoe White at the time was a very <laughs> young Dallas police officer. He was actually, I think, in training at the time and yeah. probably wouldn't have been, probably wouldn't even have been there for any particular reason. Of course, you can say he's bad man or something. But this, this story probably emerged in light of the bad man uh, claim. Yep. You know how stories emerge because of other stories. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe it, it came about because, uh, I, I forget who picked out bad man. Was it Gary Mack or? Uh, yeah, Jack White and Gary Mack. Jack White, yeah. So maybe that was, when that came about, you know, you can blend something else into that story. I mean, we know Judith Baker is an expert at blending fiction with reality and, and piggybacking Jim Garrison's uh, investigation, adding to it. And that's how a lot of these uh, people who make up these claims work. They'll, they'll just piggyback something else 
and it, I guess it gets it seems more credible if it is consistent with another story that's been out already. Yeah, and I think I think Gary Shaw had something to do with Ricky White and and all that business back then too at the time. Um, Gary Gary Shaw. Yeah. Well, I know he was in because yeah. I know he was. Um, I believe he was the one that talked to Roscoe White's preacher who claimed that Roscoe confessed to all this stuff. And I think, you know, when it came to these materials getting found and his claims and, and you know, supposedly finding these notebooks, and I, I'm pretty sure he was involved in some of this stuff back in the day. Yeah, then uh, Ricky White picked it up. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I don't know. I, I saw the uh, little clip with uh, Harold Weisberg where they were on, I think it was a Bill O'Reilly program. And uh, Weisberg is just like ripping into Ricky White because he knows it's not. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> did you see that? Yeah. yeah. Funny. I was like, funny. man, that, I was like, man, Harold Weisberg is a dick. Look at this guy going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was, he was tearing into him pretty good. Conspiracy authors. I, I, I like, I think I like Weisberg. I think he's one of the best guys. Yeah, well, he, he was honest. He believed in what he was doing. He didn't try to pull trickery. He didn't try to add things or take things away. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen some suspect things when it, when it comes to the Garrison investigation and Weisberg, but you know, all in all, he put, when you know when he when he's sticking to what he's writing and what he you know what he believes, he's he's pretty much sticking to the documents and what the documents have to say. You know, he doesn't I mean, he yeah, does he speculate, was, but he he was on our side and that we he didn't like those myths floating around out there. I think he wanted to expose some of them. Oh yeah, and it, it sickens me to death when when these guys like the uh, Neo IC and Fetzer and Sinke and all these guys, you know, want to tout Harold Weisberg as you know one of the early Oswald in the doorway guys and Mark Lane and all these posthumous guys that they just want to throw in there and make them senior posthumous members and it's and it frankly makes me sick to my stomach when I think about it. But what are you going to do? I mean, if if the families aren't going to do anything about it, then you know, who am I to, well, to <laughs> except to point it out? I like to see, I like it when Jim Fetzer, I mean, he comes up over and over again for a variety of different uh, topics. And, you know, he, there's a conspiracy in everything in his eyes. Yeah. Uh, I was watching one time, there was a, uh, uh, the 911 thing, this has to do with Jim Mars. There was a lady who was uh, in the Pentagon and uh, she said that she, what was her claim? It was something, it was kind of. Uh, she walked out through the hole. Yeah, she walked out through the hole and didn't see a plane. And, and I don't know if she had a baby with her that day. Her name was April was, something. Was, yeah, I, I, some, yeah, it was. And then you find out that, you know, she's been put up by Jim Morris. Yeah. But he was behind that whole thing. Uh, if you research her, you'll find out that her story didn't come about until after she started dealing with Jim Mars. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, April Gallup, I think, was her name. Um, yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, it was April, black girl. Yep. Yeah, I remember yeah. the video, and uh, yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. I mean, Jim Mars has never met a conspiracy he doesn't like. You know, <laughs> much like Fed. I mean, he's not as crazy as Fetzer when it comes to the out there kind of stuff, but. 
Um, and he's entertaining as hell to listen to. When you listen to Jim Mars being interviewed, he's very convincing and very uh, congenial and probably a nice guy, you know. Um, unlike Fetzer, who, you know, you can listen to him and, and, and deal with him and, you know, you can tell what a gigantic uh, douchebag that he that he is. I mean, it comes through real nice. If you had if anybody's had any dealings with him straightforward, and I have, and I can speak on that, um, you know, they know exactly what I'm talking about here. I think people like uh, Jim Fetzer, who is a doctor, I mean, he's got a PhD and everything. I think uh, they use their credentials to sell their uh, assertions, and uh, I think most, some people, I shouldn't say most, probably even a small fraction, some people believe that if a person speaks eloquently, has credentials, and it sounds really good, and they keep repeating it over and over again, that it's true. Well, that's not the case. It's not true. And I can demonstrate quite easily with common sense and anyone who has a pair of eyes that uh, Sarah Weck, though he is a professional, very a distinguished, very uh, experienced pathologist, and you know, he's very intelligent, and he speaks eloquently. I can show anyone that just because he uh, is as wise as he is and is able to articulate uh, different things about the assassination doesn't mean that he's doing it honestly. And if you don't mind, we, you want to, can we talk about Sarah Weck just for a Absolutely. Okay. Um, when he, he's been doing this for a long time. I think they got the sequence, uh, Kevin Costner's sequence where he's demonstrating the magic bullet, doing all the twists and turns and all of this. Yeah. I think that originated, I think that originated from Sarah Weck. Because he loves to do that. And he did that for the first time, I'm sure, at least a good 25 years ago or more. And uh, I saw him doing it on the uh, Gerardo Rivera show 20 years ago. And yeah. uh, there's nothing wrong with demonstrating how you think the bullet would have done. He's demonstrating how he, how he believes the Warren Commission said or wants us to believe it happened, but he's misrepresenting what the Warren Commission actually said. Right. Uh, he wants it uh, in his demonstration for us to believe that the Warren Commission wants us to believe that the bullet had to do these unusual things in order to create these uh, seven wounds in two men. And he totally discounts the justifications of the jump seats and the arrangement of the two men in the seats at the time that the, the 399 purportedly caused those wounds. Right. Yeah. It's like, no. He, he, when he demonstrates it, he'll have four people sitting in regular chairs. Doesn't mention at all that the jump seats are inboard or lower than right. the rear seats at all. And so when he demonstrates it, when you do it that way, when you don't account for those seats being in different positions, then it is going to make the trajectory false. It's going to make the bullet have to zigzag and, and this and that. And people are watching it like, wow, the Warren Commission wants us to believe that the bullet did all of this. And that's not the case at all. He's making people believe that the Warren Commission wants you to believe that. Uh, it's just a falsehood. Yeah, and, and look, I'll be the first to admit that there is a lot of problems with the medical evidence in this case, and I don't think the autopsy was done properly. Um, 
and I think you can agree as well that it wasn't done properly as as good as they should have done it. You know, they didn't dissect the neck or the you know the the, the path through the brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and look, Cyril Weck is looking at this from a later perspective. He didn't get a chance to firsthand, you know, work on the body himself. He's got to do what we got to do. We got to go to the archives. We got to get out the official record. You know, is there problems with the photographs that are in the in the in the archives? Yeah, there is a problem with them. Um, you know, is there a problem with the autopsy report? Yeah, uh, there is because it's not the first one or even the second one that's in the official record. It's the third one. You know, what was done wrong? What was changed? Why did Humes lie the first time? Why did he burn his notes? You know, this this that and the other. I, I think that uh, well we. We could we could probably debate on this for a couple of hours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's anything nefarious about the photographs and X-rays. They probably could have been done better. I don't believe they were manipulated or altered or anything like that. And uh, I do agree with you that there are some major issues with the autopsy. But uh, Sarah Weck is going off of what we don't know rather than what we do know. Right. And there are some conclusive findings I think in the autopsy. And I think anyone would be hard-pressed to prove, I mean, of course, David Lifton thinks he can prove it, that there is some manipulation of the body, some falsehoods or something that they tried to pull off that wasn't actually the, the case. Right. Now, uh, I, I think that uh, we, we, it's pretty clear where the wounds are. And uh, if you know where the wounds are and where, how the bodies were positioned uh, at a certain point, uh, on Elm Street, that is consistent with the, the wounds are consistent with the trajectory of the bullet from the sixth floor window. Right. The, uh, the problem I have is I don't even know if the Warren Commission got the shot sequence right. I don't even know if James Tagg was hit with a bullet fragment. It could have been a skull fragment, for all we know. I mean, that's, it's, that's possible. I have I have some doubts about Tagg too. I mean, I, he it may not have gone the way they uh, ascribed with his injury. And it could be a fragment from the concrete. It could be a fragment from the bullet. It could be a fragment from the skull. I'm not convinced on James Tegg right now. Yeah, or the car. I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. I think some hit him. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he, it could have been fake because, of course, uh, Buddy Walters did see the, the injury to his face. So I think something happened. Yeah, I think something happened, too. It's just, you know, we don't know exactly what and we don't know exactly when. Uh, you know, in accordance with the shot sequence, you know, it could have been the first and second, or I mean, it could have been the what, first one missed, second and third hit. I think they've got it as the second missing and the first and the third hitting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to tell. All three could have hit, you know. Um, well, the Warren Commission and the House Committee, uh, they believe the first one missed. And right. I, I think that's probably correct because you can see a reaction from Connolly as though he's reacting to a sound. And about that same time, uh, the little girl, Rosemary Willis, she stops running right about that time, and she stops looking at the president and first lady. She looks another direction at that time. Yeah. So I think those are, I think those are fairly good indications that a, a shot probably happened around frame 160. Uh, and then there was two more shots. Like right as they turned the corner there, yeah. I don't know, but I I did see where the uh, Lucas and Mike Haig, the father and son ballistic team, Mm -hmm. they conducted some tests, 
and they shot a piece of concrete that was tilted. They tilted it to simulate the tilt that would have been uh, subjected upon the bullet had it went into the ground. So they, they pretty much shot it from a 90-degree angle to the ground, but they tilted the concrete so that it would uh, mimic the conditions in Dili Plaza. And when that bullet hit that concrete, I mean, again, going back to what I was saying before, dense and velocity, density and velocity, I mean, we have both in this case. That bullet all but disintegrated. It was like hardly nothing left at all, it was like almost dust. And it was a Carcano bullet. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know what happened to that first bullet. Uh, it could have gone and done something and caused Tate's injury, but I'm not convinced. I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, the jury's out on that for me. Yeah. You know, we, we've been, we've been kind of low key, uh, hitting on some people here that are actually, uh, all going to be a part of a conference in Dallas, Texas this year at, at Judy Baker's, uh, Kennedy assassination conference. And I find it strange. Well, I don't find it strange. I mean, it's an opportunity and she's an opportunist. Um, and like like Beverly Oliver is going to be there. Cyril Wecht is going to be there. Um, if James Tague was alive, I'm sure he would be there. Um, <laughs> you know, we got a lot of these other people. And of course, Judy's going to be there herself. And uh, did you go to any conferences when you were in Dallas? There, when you when you went on the 40th and 50th there, Fred? Uh, I went uh, to conferences both times. Did you? Uh, actually, the first time that when I went in 2000. Well, actually, I went three times. Uh, I went in 2003, 2014, or 13, and then again in 2014. And what was your impression of those? Well, the first time I went, I'm, you know, I'm on the conspiracy side. So I, I, I mean, I'm further along. I'm deeper in conspiracy than where you are now. I mean, I'm thinking what these people are saying is, is true. I'm believing Beverly Oliver. I mean, she came across genuine to me. Uh, uh, who else spoke up? Uh, Jim Myers also spoke. I kind of soaked up almost everything he said with no problem. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I didn't know. And, you know, but by the time I come back home and started doing a little bit deeper research and I had gone back this time, I go back and I'm like doubting everything they said because people have shown me that these people aren't on the up and up. And I'm going to give you my, uh, I, I went to another conference with a total different frame of mind than I did the previous year. I went to the uh, Continuing in- Inquiry Conference in Manfield, Texas uh, okay. in, uh, two- in 2014. The speakers at that time were uh, Rogers- Roger Stone, Beverly Oliver, uh, Sherry Feaster, Feaster, Deborah Conway, Tasha Plumley was there, and Gary Shaw was there. What's that? Was Gary Shaw there? Gary Shaw was there. I actually had the opportunity to speak to him very briefly because I have some questions about Karen, Karen Carlin, uh, Little Lee, Little Lynn, yeah. supposedly was killed back in the 60s, but was still alive in 2010. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the only person in that entire conference who I have really any respect for is Gail. I don't, I, I don't think anybody else – well, I like Sherry Feaster too because uh, I think she's scientific and uh, I think she – I don't agree with her overall right. finding, but I, I think she's – somewhat honest and uh she's very technical and I, I like her i like her book a lot yeah but 
this is my impression of the uh, the conference because everyone contradicted each other, and they didn't they didn't seem to mind uh, that they were contradicting each other. Uh, <laughs> first of all, Beverly Oliver, uh, she she put a shooter on a grassy knoll, and you know everyone knows that that she says she saw something over there. Sure. And then Sherry Feaster disproves a shot from the knoll because she's using her standard trajectory analysis. Mm-hmm. And she uses the uh, trajectory clone analysis where you take the injury uh, to President Kennedy's head and you create a cone with it. And from that cone, it kind of spreads out and you can, the shooter should be somewhere in that cone. And that, according to her, is somewhere in the South Knoll area. So there's a shooter in the South Knoll, okay? Yep. Tosh Plumley was there. Okay. Right. Yeah. And he was on the CIA's assassination abort team, he says. Right. And they were on the South Knoll where, where Sherry Feaster put a shooter. Right. But he didn't, they didn't say anything about a shooter being there, and they were supposedly on the South Knoll. So, you know, that's a con- another contradiction. Then, you, then Roger Stone placed a uh, shooter on the sixth floor, not Oswald, but Mac Wallace. Of course, yeah. Because of the... the uh, Alleged fingerprint that Nathan Darby, the print examiner for, was he FBI? I can't remember what he, what, I don't know who it was. But I think it was just a nationally guy. certified expert or something like that. Yeah, and he concluded that it was Mac Wallace's fingerprint. Right. And Sherry Feaster, actually, the first time I saw that discredited was from a post Sherry Feaster made. So again, we have another contradiction. And he, all these people are contradicting each other and but you know they don't seem to have a, a issue with it at all it, it, it's a great conference and i have to say though these conferences uh there's some of the, like the nicest people you ever meet yeah they it's well organized they put on a good conference it's, it's enjoyable they generally have good food there and it's just a, it's just a warm experience but they're putting out bad information and it's just it, it doesn't conform to the historic record and it doesn't conform to logic. And why are they all contradicting each other? I mean, they all can't be right, can they? No. There's something no. wrong. And it reminds me of a it reminds me of a defense attorney who just throws all sorts of theories at you uh, to create reasonable doubt. I mean, it's like one of those things. I mean, you can't have a someone debunking the grassy knoll, and then another person say they saw the shooter at the grassy knoll, all in one conference doesn't make one make sense to me. No, well, I mean, they all have something to sell, too. So, there's that. I mean, I'm sure you, I'm sure you saw that as well, you know. Yeah, they had their book there. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Everyone had a book there. Yeah, and in, the, and in that book, you know, they're writing about what, they, what they're speaking about. So, you know, they're not going to they're not going to come off their story. They got to stick to their story and they figure it is what it is, you know? And, and like you said, you know, this year, I think, uh, that they're having that conference again, that it's not quite in Dallas. Is it? It's right out on the outskirts in man. It's a Mansfield. It was in Mansfield when I went, I think it's there again. Yeah. I think it's I in the same place. I would never go to another one of these conferences, but I, I would encourage anyone to go. And see what you think. I mean, uh, they're entertaining. If you don't get anything out of them, they're yeah. entertaining. And there's, it's not it's not all bad. I mean, there's there's also some good information. I thought uh, Gail Gail Jackson did a presentation. I thought was really good, and I think she had a, a very legitimate 
a reason to be given the conference. And she had a very, you know, where we all would like to see the actual original Knicks film. So I thought that was very good and very important. But there's a lot of other bad information that went along with that. So you had to take the good with the bad. Yeah, that's that's something else we forgot to mention with Bev Oliver there is uh, when she did actually come forth and say that she had found some frames from the film that was taken from her, they ended up being stills from the next film. Exactly. It what was, uh, the one hell? Of the frames was, I can tell you exactly the frame. There's a mixed <laughs> frame. Zero, zero 061 was one of the frames she said was her frame. And the only difference is hers was tilted so that it's corrected because the original Nix film was at a slant the way Orwell Nix was holding the camera at an angle. So it was slanted. Uh, right. Whoever used, someone corrected it for her or she corrected it herself. I don't know. And uh, they changed the aspect ratio a little bit so that it was taller. But there were points in it, like photographic anomalies in it, like spots or whatnot, that are exactly the same. There's no way you can have two photos that are different have the same uh, imperfections in it like that. Yeah, I think her reasoning was, it has to be my film because I'm not in it. <laughs> it, it was shown to her. I, it was shown to her that uh, the angle was bad, was, was inconsistent with where she said she stood. Yeah, it's all wrong. Yeah, another thing she she had said that when she lined up there, she she went over and stood by a man and his son, referring to Charles Brim and his son. But in actuality, they were over on Houston Street when the parade they started. Even there yet? Yeah, I, and yeah, they weren't even they, there yet. Yeah, they ran over. That way, when after the president went by them and turned on the Elm Street, they ran over that way to get another look at him. And that's where they got caught on the Zapruder film. Rob, that's how I know that they make these stories up when they look at pictures. They, they figure out, okay, we can say this, we can say that, because we see this and that. But had they paid attention to what Charles Brim had testified to, then they would have known that they couldn't say that. She could, she could have adjusted her story to accommodate the fact that Charles Brim had just got there. Right. She didn't do that. And uh, on the cover of uh, Beverly's book is a frame from the Much More film, which shows there's an arrow pointing to the Bush Bush lady. You know, she claims it's her. There's a sharper picture of this image, uh, this frame from the Much More film. And in it, you can see that there's, a dress underneath the coat that the Bush lady is wearing. Now, as you mentioned earlier, when we started, you said Beverly was given a white and pink, white and green polka dot dress. Yeah. Uh, white and green, I think. I think so. Yeah. If you look at this much more frame, you can see a portion of the dress underneath the coat. There are no dots there. It might be green, but there are no, you can't see any dots. Now, could it be dots higher up on the dress? That's possible. But if there were any dots lower on the dress, you would be able to see them because you can see where the dress contrasts with her leg. And it's like a, you can totally see the uh, separation there. So you would, if it was a white dot, you would definitely see it. And you can't see any dots on that dress. Right. So that's just another inconsistency. Yeah. And like some of the other speakers are they're going to be at this conference. Fred, we got... Of course, Bar McClellan and Phil Nelson, two huge LBJ did it guys and proponents of the Mac Wallace myth. And and for everybody that hasn't listened, Chuck Chuck O'Chelly had Joan Mellon on his show last week, 
and about her new book, and she goes into it. She goes a lot into Mac Wallace and LBJ, and explains how she came to find that the fingerprint was not Mac Wallace's, and that Mac Wallace wasn't even in Texas at the time of the assassination. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that might be pretty good information. Yeah, it was a really, not his friend. Right, yeah, and you know, she said she she had her own independent analysis, and everything's in the book. It's in the appendix. All the, uh, you know, the forensic uh, analysis of the fingerprint that was redone by an actual certified latent print examiner using the, late, the latest technology. That. Yeah, there's a person. I, I don't know how late it was, but there's a Casey Wertheim, and he was a uh, certified latent print examiner. And uh, it's available online. This is the one I was talking about. Uh, Sherry Feaster posted. And after I saw it, I was like, wow. Because it actually gives you, he actually color-coded it to where you can see the difference between the, the two prints. Right. Uh, in the uh, TSBD print, and, I mean, we all know that uh, fingerprints have the little swirly lines. In the TSBD print, uh, there's, the, in between some of those swirly lines, they diverge, and then there's a ridge a line that ends, which they call an ending ridge. Uh, very obvious. And he, he color codes at the uh, print examiner. So layman like you and myself can look at, well, you may not be layman. You might be an expert. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm a layman. <laughs> <laughs> so when we see that, we can see that, hey, okay, there's a red line here, but there can't be a red line in the Wallace print because he doesn't have that line to make red. So that can't be Wallace's print. And uh, that person's name is... Uh, I want to give him credit because it's due. Uh, Casey Wertheim, he's a uh, certified latent print examiner. You can find that online. Yeah, well, if you could, Fred, send it to me, and I'll post it with the uh, with the post for the show so everybody can see it. Absolutely. Okay. It's been floating around. You may have seen it already. Yeah, I've seen it. I just but, uh, I I'll probably couldn't find it again. I'll go ahead and send it to you. Okay. And uh, let's see. Can we we can. Some of the people you mentioned, I don't, I don't, not very familiar. I'm somewhat familiar with uh, Judy Baker, so I may be able to give you some interaction on that one. Yeah, well, she's a. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody knows who she is and her claims at this point. And you know, like I said, it's her most recent claims. Of course, was uh, her science fiction book that that Lee Oswald wrote, uh, two or three science fiction stories that is in her book. Um, Letters to the Cyborgs, I believe it was. Um, she's got a new book coming out called Kennedy and Oswald, The Big Picture, co-written with Edward Schwartz, that she'll be able to sell at the conference. Um, well, you know, I don't need to get caught up. I'm, I'm still in her David Ferry book. Yeah, David Ferry, yeah. I'm, I'm back in the time, so I'm <laughs> making more claims even. You ever notice Judith Baker is like the jack-of-all-trades? I mean... At 17, she is leading. I mean, no one is uh, as uh, successful with cancer research as she is. She's a child prodigy at 17, doing things that the National Cancer, cancer Research Society can't do because they're just not as uh, technical as she is at it. I mean, yeah. how, how is that? It, 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 it kind of defies logic. And then... Of course, uh, she's able to get recruited by them and then ultimately it turns out they're not doing the cancer research she thought they were doing. They're actually trying to develop a weapon, a biological okay. weapon, 
that's a fantastic, that's a pretty fantastic story. I mean, that was a very creative story. Yeah. And I mean, I've always said, you know, if her claims are true, then she's guilty of murder, attempted murder, uh, adultery, treason, you know, for knowing that the president was going to be killed and not doing anything about it. Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, it, it's not a it's not a list that I would be proud of to have and uh, involve myself in, but she seems to have no problem with it. You know, and of course, the big thing is with her claims is that everybody's already dead. So there's absolutely nobody to substantiate any of her claims. And I, I think Lynn... A common trend among some of these people who make claims, typically after other people who were involved are gone. Yeah, now Bev Oliver, when she... Now Jack Lawrence, I believe, is still with us. And when he found out what she was claiming, he steadfastly denied it and uh even called him out on it said uh because he was married at the time and he and she was like you know there's absolutely nothing wrong with dancing with a uh, you know a beautiful young blonde girl why are you afraid to admit it or something like that you know and then of course this guy jack lawrence went on to become a a minister somewhere in west virginia at you know later on later on um and he might still be for all i know but uh yeah, I mean, so, I mean, she was making claims to people that were still alive. Um, now, of course, not Ferry at the time. He was already dead. Oswald's dead. Ruby's dead. Um, nobody seems to know what happened to Jada. Um, I know what happened to Jada. What happened to her? There's a guy named, there's a, guy named uh, a researcher named Mark K. Colgan who did some research on Jada. And uh, she died in a motorcycle crash. The motorcycle crashed into a school bus. There's a newspaper article on it. And he checked everything down. He found her family. He found where she's buried, everything. Uh, and what year was this? 1980. Oh, okay. 1980. So if you know that, if you're trying to spin something and you know she's gone, of course you can throw Jada around. You can say Jada was there when I met Oswald and everything. Yeah, but retro retroactively, her claims doesn't stand up because, like you said, you know she was interviewed on camera um, shortly after the assassination and and the Warren Commission and everything when she denied knowing Oswald or ever seeing him before. So, I'm going to send you that too. This uh, research by Mark Colgan. This is an excellent, excellent report. Okay, yeah, we can put it with the post for this for sure. Jada. Now, one other, of course, one other guy I wanted to touch on who's going to be at this conference. And, and of course, at every conference, like, I, I call this the cuckoo conference. Like, this is the conference of people that aren't legitimate, but they still want to be involved. They still have stuff to sell. And every once in a while, you know, you'll see people there, and you're like, what are they doing there? You know, why are they even there? Why would they even, you know, associate themselves with the rest of these people? And... Of course, the first guy I come across here is Abraham Bolden, who, of course, he has a book to sell. Um, and, of course, his claim is that is that the FBI announced to his office that an informant named Lee had foiled an attempt to assassinate the president in that city. Which in Chicago, right? Yeah, which kind of... Um, I don't know. I think Judy has kind of uh, latched onto this and it substantiates that story that, that Lee called and, and warned the FBI that, that Kennedy would be killed. Um, yeah, I do remember hearing her say that. 
So that might be a possibility. Um, but like I said, he's got a book to sell. Uh, St. John Hunt is going to be there. <laughs> uh, Jim Fetzer, of course, is going to be there. Um, Gary Fannin just had a book come out. He's going to be there. Yeah, I've had some exchanges with that guy. Yeah, he's online, big, big on Facebook. Um, Douglas Caddy. <laughs> I wanted to touch on this one because uh, – I mean, he, he, he does have some... I, I think he was a lawyer for some of the Watergate guys, I believe. Um, I don't have his full bio here with me, but I know what he's saying is that Kennedy was killed to protect the clandestine UFO agenda. You know, he's one of these guys that, that pushes, you know, because these Project Blue Book files and these alleged files, and I'm sure you've seen them, where Kennedy's inquiring to the CIA, he wants all the files on UFOs like two weeks two weeks before he before he died or was killed. And it, the, okay, with with the presumption that there are actually UFO documents that exist, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. So are they saying? I mean. I, I'm your audience on this one. I don't know too much about. Well, them. I've seen them. I've seen the the requests. I, I guess you would call it from from uh, Kennedy. And I don't know how legitimate that these documents are. Um, you know, of course they're stamped. You know, classified, top secret, whatever, whatever. You know, straight to the head of the CIA requ- requesting all information on unidentified flying objects be turned over to him because supposedly he wanted to have full disclosure with the Russians on this subject just to clear up, you know, that in case something were to happen that, you know, there are UFOs or there aren't UFOs or they're not our guys or they're not your guys, you know what I'm saying? So, right. You know, of course, this is in the height of the Cold War, and and nuclear threat is very real. And you know, you don't want a UFO over Russia to be mistaken for, you know, a United States aircraft or something to that effect. And then they, you know, attempt to uh, start launching nukes over here. But you know, as to like you said, I you know, I don't know if if UFOs are real or or, or what the deal is. There's people that believe it very very passionately. Um. You know, the idea intrigues me, of course, you know, whether it's aliens or whether it's our own technology, different story. I mean, there's, I think there's way too many sightings to be just dismissed out of hand, but of course, no solid proof and no real good video, you know, no, no aliens on Geraldo, you know, is talking to us or anything, but, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of what he's pushing. Um, I wonder if he has any affiliation with Jim Mars, because Jim Mars is a big alien guy too. It's it's quite possible. You know, he, he I think Jim Mars wrote the book The Alien Agenda. Um and uh, Douglas Caddy, I think he he went on the the show called The Dark Journalist and did an interview about it. And uh yeah, he was a uh, says he was briefly an American attorney who was briefly counsel for the five men arrested for the Watergate burglaries as well as two other men involved in the White, White Watergate scandal. Um, but, you know, that's, his, that's about his only claim to fame. And, of course, he, you know, using that, I'm, you know, I don't know if he's some kind of CIA lawyer or what, but, 
Um, it's you know it's hard to say. I'm, I, it sounds like this is going to be a pretty interesting uh, conference. Hopefully, I'll have access to. I mean, I know they'll probably put it on YouTube or something. We'll be able to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I know they. Uh, I know they, they they sometimes stream it live, but yeah, he's saying JFK was killed over the alien presence. Um, you know, but I mean, when you throw all these guys together, and and you're like, what the hell? And you know, you, contradiction. I mean, it, nothing nothing uh, corresponds to the next. I mean, some of it does, but you have uh, different contradicting stories. But they all present them as though their story is the right one, and they all get along. Like they all, it's like makes no difference that they all their stories don't uh, typically correspond to each other. Yeah, yeah, they don't jive. I mean, you got three LBJ guy did it uh, guys, and and you got oh the, the the CIA killed him over aliens. You got you know St. John Hunt, and then CIA was behind it, and of course Lyndon Johnson at the top of that list, and. But yet, you know, they don't touch all this stuff that, that new research that proves that Mac Wallace wasn't the gunman. Well, if Mac Wallace wasn't the gunman, then LBJ is not the boogeyman. Was LBJ a bastard? Yeah, probably. He probably wasn't a very nice guy. He probably did a lot of shady stuff, probably criminal. Uh, but can we pin the assassination on him? I don't think so. So how do they reconcile that then? If you have some J, uh, LBJ guy, LBJ did it guy, and then at the same time, probably within the same day or maybe the next day, another person is saying it's impossible, it's not LB or Mac Wallace. How, how does that work? How do they uh, reconcile that? Well, there is nobody at their conference saying that it wasn't Mac Wallace. Oh, yeah? In fact, they have a guy that says it was Mac Wallace, which is Richard, Richard Bartholomew. Oh, sorry about that. That was on mute. Um, they have a guy there that, that says that it was Mac Wallace, a guy named Richard Bartholomew, who touts, of course, the, the, the Darby analysis and everything, but he doesn't take into consideration, you know, any of the new evidence that Joe Mellon has put it out there. And, you know, what's the best way to not even worry about that is just dismiss it and ignore it and not mention it. Because I guarantee you, Fred, that 99% of the people that are going to this conference don't have a clue. I tried to explain to somebody the other day that this fingerprint evidence has been debunked, and they did not want to hear it. They they just flat out would not listen and wouldn't believe me and nothing. I finally gave up. That's, that's called confirmation bias. They're only going to listen to what supports what they already believe. And it's a, that's a hard thing to break through. And I'm going to tell you, because I, I did it myself, I did not want to think we have a different opinion on this, you and I, but <clears throat> I did not want to think Oswald could have anything to, to do with Kennedy's murder. And it was, it was tough at first. I mean, I have no problem with it now because I believe it's, I believe it's true. But to switch your belief when you're faced with something that totally changed your ideas around, you, you might have a hard time with it. I mean, so that, that might be that denial that the defense mechanism he might have. He doesn't want to know that there's something that disproves that Wallace's fingerprint was found. Because then it may have, he may have to reconsider his beliefs, and he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I call these people parrots, because that's all they do is parrot what other people say. And, and if you're going to get out there, and you're going to get on a circuit, and you're going to write papers about it, then do your own research. Hire your own expert, and 
exactly like Joe Mellon did and, and, and do it again and double check things, you know, because research done, especially when you're dealing with scientific things on tw- 20 years ago, you know, the technology is so far better now, uh, you know, as opposed to it was 20 years ago when they're looking basically by hand, they're looking at one print and another and they're doing it like that, like old school, you know, now you can upload the stuff in the computer and have a computer do it on a microscopic level that you can't even see with your own eye. You know what I mean? It's, right. You know, and, and I'm trying it, to encourage people to, uh, like, going off of what you just said, uh, do your own research, check, double check, prove yourself wrong. I mean, don't always try to prove yourself right. Prove yourself right by proving yourself, by trying to prove yourself wrong. That's something that makes people uncomfortable doing. You don't want to prove yourself wrong, but if you do that and you find that yourself, you find that it was wrong, then at least you know what's right. So try to prove yourself right by proving yourself wrong. Yeah, that's a that's a real good analogy. Yeah, that's what I try to do. It's difficult because I don't want to. For example, um, I have to accept the fact that uh, uh, Spiegelman and Tobin. Uh, did a lead bullet analysis, which proves that you cannot conclude all lead came from one bullet. They disproved, uh, what's the guy's name from the uh, Warren Commission? Uh, the lead bullet analysis. Was it Frazier? No, uh, there's another guy. But he did the uh, neutron activation analysis. And okay. according to his analysis, uh, Vincent Gwynn, okay. according to his analysis, all the lead came from one bullet. But they've had subsequent analysis that proves that you can't say that. It doesn't just prove the single bullet, but it proves that his analysis was not good. You, it proves that all the, bullet, all the bullet fragments could have come from five different sources. Could have, I have to emphasize. Yeah. So for, for, I believe Oswald killed Kennedy. So now I have to except the fact that the lead that was tested could have come from five different bullets. I have to accept that too. So I don't want to, but I can't deny it because it's science. I mean, it's, it's peer-reviewed science. There's been two studies that prove the same thing, and it totally debunks Vincent Gwynn's analysis that the bullets were unique, the bullet fragments were unique and could be conclusively matched to uh, one bullet, which you cannot. So... How many people can do that? How, can you leave your comfort zone and accept something that doesn't jive with your belief? Not many people are willing to do that. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and I try to do the same thing. You know, when I get a, a, a scenario in my head, a possible scenario, I try to look at what all the possibilities are, you know, if it was one way or if it was another way. You know, like take, for instance, from the time Oswald leaves the Texas School Book Depository until he's captured at the Texas Theater, you know, uh, taking into consideration, you know, was it was it Oswald? Was Oswald even living at Beckley Street or was it somebody using his identification that looked like him? You know, and go from there all, all the way down to the end and see if anything disagrees with that or if it all jives together or... You know, see if you can disprove it one way or the other. And, you know, I totally agree. You know, you, you got you to gotta be willing to go where the evidence takes you and, 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 you know, be willing to 
change your your way of thinking and your perspective based on the evidence and the facts, you know, especially that can be proven. Yeah, for some reason they just can't do that. I mean, it's, I guess it's uncomfortable to leave that place where you feel comfortable, uh, and they just can't do it. It's just I don't know. I mean, it's, it, I guess it takes a certain type of person who can say, "Well, okay, it's proven, so I'll, I, I can accept it." I don't know. I just that's that's just my own opinion. I mean, I I, may, I could be wrong. No, I mean, I, we see it every day, you know what I mean? We see it every day in, in every Facebook group and every discussion forum, you know, is, I mean, that's why we're still interested in the case because it seems like every time you turn around, there's something new to look at, there's something new to consider, um, something new to debunk, something, you know, there's always something, and no matter what side of the fence you're on, um, you know, things keep sprouting up and you got to get out your weed whacker and cut them back down and, you know, or water them, whichever, whichever way you want to do it. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm here. That's why, that's why you're here. And that's why we're, you know, everybody that listening is still interested in the case today, 53 years later. Yeah. There was a uh, conversation I was in not too long ago, not particularly a person that I disagree with. I mean, we both agree the same conclusion, but he was saying that, uh, it makes no sense to have to debunk these same things over and over again that keep coming up. I disagree with that because there's always a new generation of people coming forward and getting interested in this case. I think they should have both sides of the story to evaluate all the evidence. I mean, if there's something that's not good, I think we should debunk it again and again and again. If it keeps coming up, we should keep knocking it down. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what, what's right? now, you know, when we're not like, or 20 years, I don't know, uh, maybe a little older, when we're not thinking about Beverly Aller anymore, there's going to be a whole new group of people who are like, hey, there's, she was the Babushka lady and her film is out there somewhere. People are going to believe that. And it takes people like us to say, well, look, there's some different evidence that refutes what you are, your, your belief about this, and here it is. Check it out for yourself and form your own opinion. Yeah, that's another thing with this. You see evidence being brought back up on almost a cyclical basis. Um, you know, you'll think you have something debunked for a while, and then here it pops up again. You know, kind of like the Oswald in the doorway stuff. I mean, they were talking about this back in the 60s. You know, could it possibly be Lee Oswald? And there's no way that took it quite as far as uh, these clowns in the OIC have today with their photo manipulation and uh, coloring books and 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 nastiness and uh whatever else you want to accuse them of but but more more back to the point you were speaking about earlier in the groups you know about debunking things you know i think fred for every one person that you're talking to that has the guts to get on there and 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 actually have a conversation about it i'm pretty sure there's at least 20 other people lurking reading that post but not saying a word and just taking in what you're what you're writing um and I, I've made exactly that point where I'm glad you said that because I, I tell people like there's people who are reading this stuff who may not want to interject. I mean, they don't want to get involved, but people are reading this stuff and it needs to be, some of these things need to be debunked. Oh, for sure. Cause I mean, look, I'm guilty of it too. I don't jump in every conversation I see, but believe me, I see a lot of them and I learn from a lot of them and you know, I file it away and 
you know, even like in the forums, like the education forum or something like that. Look, I, you know, I, I still don't to this day, but you know, it, those guys, uh, you know, a lot of them really know what they're talking about. They're, they're really skilled at what they do. And, you know, they don't even mess with Facebook. They stick straight to the forums. And, you know, for a newcomer to come and jump in the middle of that fray, uh, it takes guts. You know, and I, I guarantee you, like, you know, like I said, that for every one person that's in there saying something, you know, 20 or more people are, are watching it and reading along. Uh, you know, even maybe not that day. But that conversation lasts forever um, until yeah, it, until it's deleted. You know, somebody can go in a Facebook group and, and go back through all the posts and read all the comments from a year ago, two years ago, and it's all still right there. And I think you do more good than bad if you you know if you if you just don't bother. You know, and I'm guilty of sometimes just not bothering to correct people because I get sick of doing it so much, but. You know, some people are just so nasty and... Yeah, it, that's the unfortunate part. But I do, sometimes I'll do what you do and I'll just sit there and read. And I pick my battles. If they're, if they're talking about something that's beyond my knowledge, I'll just sit there and read a little bit and maybe do a little study, try to find out more about it. But you, typically the discussions I get involved in, I know a little bit about it and I'm still learning about it. But sometimes I will do what you do and just read. And, uh, yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's, I'm, I'm, some things need to be debunk, debunked for me, too. I mean, I, I'm still learning. I'm, there's things that uh, I need to discover and research and find out on my own. Yeah, I mean, we're all at different points in our research, some further along than others, some not as far along as others. And, of course, there's people who think they know more than others uh, out there all the time. But uh, it's important to do your own research and to work with as much primary document evidence as possible and make your conclusions from them instead of reading a couple Jim Mars books and a couple Jim Fetzer books and then getting on the Internet and parenting what you read and you end up looking like an idiot. And, you know, this is these are the kind of people that are going to be going to Judy Baker's conference. And I'm glad... I'm glad that um, our buddy Carmine is getting a chance to speak at Lancer um, this year. Hopefully, he'll be able to reach some people. I think he's going to be talking about some of the myths. Um, so that should be interesting to to uh, keep an eye on, Fred. And uh, look, he's going to be he's going to be talking about other people on that panel. So how is that going to work? Yeah, I don't he's know. Be debunking them. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So it should be interesting. You know. Um, and it, it, it's good to hear that he's not backing down, and it's actually good to hear that they're actually bringing him in. So, um, you know, they're I'm not. Surprised they're, they're accepting him because he he puts a uh, he puts a premium on uh, evidence, and that's just not something people who want to spend stories like to do. And he comes from uh, he his stuff is uh, primary material and evidence based, and that those things are the enemy to people who uh, have some of these claims that are going to be at that conference. So it'd be really interesting to see how that works. Yeah. Well, fortunately he's going to be at Lancer, which doesn't have people of the Judy Baker ilk there. Um, I, I think the only crossover person is uh, Cyril Wecht. I think he's speaking at both conferences. Um, but he, he did that before, you know, he spoke at the conference I went to and then he went over and spoke at the art conference and I think it's just a proximity thing, and uh, 
you know, another speaking fee, basically. <laughs> um, but, you know, ho- well, hopefully, you know, people learned a lot today, Fred. And look, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me, even though we don't see eye to eye on, on some things. I think we uh, actually agree on more things than, than you would think. Um, and look, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, there's definitely a respect between us. When I see you post things that I agree with, uh, I'll even post some of your uh, past podcasts that debunk certain things that I agree with, and I think you do a really good job. I think that your archives are an excellent source to a lot of good information, and I always try to uh, let people know that they're there. And I tag your name on there sometimes so people can know it. Uh, And I I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. I, it's a privilege that uh, among all the people that you have had on your show who are far more uh, advanced than I am in this, these materials and uh, been in this research for a lot longer time, you actually considered me and thought about me. So I really appreciate that, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, no problem, man. I respect everything you do, and I respect you as a person. And, uh, you know, it's, the the way you carry yourself goes a long way, believe it or not. And, you know, I'd much rather talk to you than I would than than Judy Baker <laughs> any day of the week, and uh, you know, basically, I want you know it's been a while since I've had somebody else from the other side on, and I wanted to bring you on because I haven't had you on the show before, and I know you're interested in, in talking about this stuff as well, and you did a great job um, debunking the Babushka lady claims, so that's why I wanted to have you on here, and uh, hopefully, people learned a lot today, and like I said. Um, I'm going to be posting some of some of the stuff that we talked about here today over on TLGpodcast.com for you to check it out for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Um, we can sit here and tell you what is ridiculous, uh, what is blatantly uh, lies, uh, you know. But of course, for these people, Fred, that, that disbelieve in, in Beverly Oliver, because trust me, like you said, if you meet some of these people in real life, they will fool you. You know, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Yeah, but, you know, then they turn around and they're laughing all the way to the bank. So, um, you know, I met Judy Baker in person. Nice lady. Seriously. I'm not even lying about that. She's not she's not cold or nasty in any way in person. Um, very nice lady. But she's out of her damn mind. I, I don't know if she's... Just one of these people that is blatantly lying or she's just told this lie to herself for so many years that she believes it now. You know, it's <laughs> it, there's a fine line between mentally ill and deception. And, and, you know, especially with someone who is, you know, getting up there in age. And look, I don't want to speak to the lady, but, you know, she's perpetrated a lot of bullshit on, on the research community as a whole. And I think any... Any chance to to just get the truth out there and have people realize that what some of these people out there are telling us is not exactly always the truth. Do your own research. You know, keep a strong vigilance. And, you know, with with, with their stories and check them out and uh, draw your own conclusions on on what these people are saying. And just because they have a fantastic story. And it might seem to support everything you believe about the assassination. You know, without evidence, it is just a story. Exactly. And there's some cleverly crafted stories out there that are extremely 
believable and palpable. But when you put them under a magnifying glass and compare them to the, uh, the, the historic record in the first generation documents, many of them will disintegrate and just dissolve. Yep, well said. Fred, thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Thanks, Rob. And uh, if you ever want me to come on in the future again, I'll be willing to do it. It'll be great. Absolutely. Always an open invitation, man. And so, folks, head over to TLGpodcast.com for more, for some of the links from this show that we talked about. That's it. This bitch is in the can, beamed up the satellite down directly to your ears, people. This is your boy. Peace. to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.